Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Carrie Fignor, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese. In our bi-monthly podcast, we feature interviews with philosophers about their new ideas as expressed in their newly published books. Today's interview is with Peter Ludlow about his new book, The Philosophy of Generative Linguistics, which was published this year with Oxford University Press. Professor Ludlow is John Evans Professor of Moral and Intellectual Philosophy at Northwestern University. The human capacity for language is almost always cited as the or one of the cognitive capacities we have that separates us from non-human animals. And linguistics, at its most basic level, is the study of language as such, in the primary and usual case, how we manage the pairing of sounds with meanings to make make such a thing as speech even possible. As a graduate student at Harvard in the 1950s, Noam Chomsky initiated a revolution in thinking about linguistics that is now the standard view. According to Chomsky, language is a biologically based cognitive capacity that develops in specific ways in all humans given the appropriate, usually acoustic, inputs. The end result is someone who speaks unnatural language, like English or French or Swahili, for example, and who also has reliable, if defeasible, intuitions about what can and cannot correctly be said in that natural language. In his new book, Ludlow examines a variety of controversial themes related to this model. What is the nature of this basic universal capacity for language, and how is it related to the natural languages that we come to speak? What sort of evidence can intuitions about what we can and can't say provide about the underlying rules for generating meaningful sounds that we come to possess, especially when we have no conscious access to those rules? Does it make sense to think that this grammar provides normative guidance for our linguistic behavior when we don't know what it is? Let's turn to the interview to hear Professor Ludlow's answers. I have with with me today Peter Ludlow, whose book, The Philosophy of Generative Linguistics, sort of establishes a baseline for discussing philosophical issues related to the science of linguistics, uh, considered as a branch of cognitive psychology. And among the more provocative theses of the book um, are the ideas that the uh, grammars that we possess are normative, in the sense that moral rules are normative. Um, and also the claim that syntax can be individuated widely, and also in disagreement with Chomsky that referential semantics um, is indeed possible. Uh, so, Professor Ledlow, are you uh, there? Greetings. Hi. Hi. Um, before we talk, start talking about your, your book, um, it might be a good idea to uh, inform our audience a little bit about your philosophical background, you know, how you got interested in philosophy, and um, how you came to write this book in particular. I think I got into philosophy 
because um, I, I started out as an economics major as a freshman, and I kept getting into arguments with people, and they seemed to bottom out in philosophical questions, and eventually I just started taking classes. And then I got into philosophy of language through uh, philosophy of religion, really. It was reading Plantiga, and that got me into philosophy of language. And um, when I was studying philosophy of language in grad school, um, my professors there sort of turned me on to generative linguistics. I spent some time at MIT. And so um, I ended up working in philosophy of uh, linguistics a bit. And that's, that's the general path. Okay. Um, so maybe, I mean, so you worked with uh, Noam Chomsky then? Well, I wouldn't say I worked with him. I, mean, okay. I took classes from him. I met, you know, I had meetings with him now and then. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I was just a visiting, a visiting student, I guess, is what I was for a year and a half at MIT. Okay. Um, so generative linguistics is, is closely identified with Chomsky, of course. Um, so maybe you could uh, start us off with a little bit of background on the Chomskyan revolution in linguistics. Um, first of all, uh, the view of language and the method of investigating language um, that he was rejecting. Um, where linguistics is now um, in terms of the core model explored in the book. And then um, also maybe how this view is related to the, you know, the grammar that we all learn in grade school and the languages that we learn typically in high school and beyond. Well, Chomsky came on the scene in the 50s, which was kind of in the heyday of behaviorism and psychology. And I think that the, uh, the basic view about the study of language was not so far off from the way we thought about the study of uh, mind and psychology back in those days. Uh, the thought was, you know, you don't want to be concerned about internal mechanisms in the mind at all. You just want to be concerned with things that are observable. And so you have this data, which is is basically, would typically come in a corpus of written work or something. And then you would attempt to construct some, well, it's it's not always even that you, you're constructing theories. It's just a lot of data gathering for the most part. And uh, I think Chomsky's key idea was was to sort of ask the question of, well, what, how is it that we're learning the languages that we do? I mean, what is the, the process by which we learn, the, you know, um, by, by which... Uh, I'm capable of learning English when I happen to be born into a place where other people speak English. And um, how are those different languages related? And, um, uh, I mean, basically, I think the key thing is just, you know, what are the mechanisms by which uh, we do learn languages? That's that's the kind of key insight there. So it's it's a descriptive project. It's not about how we should speak and so forth. It's just a... It's just a project trying to describe those underlying mechanisms. Um, and what sort of model did he come up with um, to replace the the, the prior um, paradigm in linguistics? Well, generative linguistics is basically you have a set of rules that are going to explain the... Um, describe the grammar that you've acquired. And so uh, they would be 
it's difficult to sort of describe these rules or what they look like in, in an audio presentation, but uh, the basic idea is that trees are, so when you say something, it's, it's a, a structured object. It's a very finely structured object, and it has much more complexity than you, than you, than you might realize. And so when we study language, we're, we're actually studying these very complex and subtle objects, and what we want to do is construct uh, a, a theory that's where we have certain little building blocks and then we have rules that tell us how to combine those, those building blocks. And um, if we get it right, then, then our, our little theory of building blocks and the composition rules is going to yield something that looks like those rich and complex linguistic structures uh, that are, 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 the, are the product of investigation. So the, the bl- building blocks are things like phonemes or words? Um, we could say that they are – we could just call them lexical items, and we could say um, – it, it might be words or it might be something smaller than a word, like a morpheme. Um, and, uh, you know, probably if you're doing syntax, it's, it's not necessarily in the beginning going to involve phonemes, but, but morphemes, yes. So, like, worked has two morphemes in it. There's the sort of stem work and then the ed ending, which sort of supplies the tense for it. Um, so those elements... To a first approximation could be your building blocks. Now, as it turns out, it looks it ends up being a lot like atomic physics, where you know we it, we initially think, well, we've got protons, electrons, and and uh, neutrons, but then it turns out there are lots and lots of things that you you don't actually see or you don't see very easily. So there are a lot of functional elements, little little bits of uh, little building blocks that you don't hear or see for the most part and you even you even see this in a simple word like ran so ran actually has two parts to it or two morphemes uh there's a past tense morpheme in there but it's just sort of munched in with uh with word with the word run so there's gonna be lots of structure in there lots of little building blocks that you don't you don't that they, it might come as a surprise to you that they're there so how why is this called generative Linguistics. Well, to me, generative means that uh, it's it is because you have this um, theory which has the basic building blocks and then the combination rules. And so, if you apply apply the the combinatorial rules to the building blocks, it in effect generates a language. It generates all these structures that that um, constitute your language. Okay. Um, now, in in the first chapter, I mean, after you you go through several uh, of the forms in which the, you know, the the standard models in linguistics have um, developed, um, what would you say is the the main model nowadays? Is it still the, what, principles and parameters model? You know, I think um, Chomsky has always insisted that his view is the minority position in linguistics, because I just feel he, he he just like likes to think of himself as being in the minority position and i don't actually you know it's very difficult you get around to other linguistics departments around the world and there's all kinds of things going on and it's very difficult to know what the main or dominant model is but i think at least for the research enterprise that i'm interested in 
I think it's fair to say that um, it, it is a development of the principles and parameters framework, yes. Okay, so could you maybe, I mean, I have this very um, sort of crude picture of the principles and parameters network as, or, or uh, a framework as one in which I'm sort of born with some sort of, I don't know, faculty or uh, I don't want to say module because you actually never use the word module. Um, Some sort of cognitive framework or capacity in which there are lots of these little like toggle switches. And um, as I get linguistic input from you know, my surroundings, um, primarily my parents, but also schoolmates and what have you. Um, These toggle switches get, you know, put one way or another. And as a result of that, um, that somehow is what determines the language that I, or the first language that I acquire. Yep. Okay. that's a good picture. Okay. And you can, you can even call that a module if you want to. That's fine with me. Um, okay. Well, I mean, it's it's rather controversial, I suppose, um, whether it is a module or not. But um, certainly people don't have much difficulty talking about a language faculty. Mm. Um, uh, now, one, so one of the questions that I – this and this okay so this faculty or capacity is sometimes also called universal grammar correct uh yes universal grammar actually is the object of study and um so we're thinking of some sort of mechanism it has it basically does have the properties of a module as i understand it because it's a it's like a kind of standalone little software patch um, that that's kind of has this parametric structure to it. And when we talk about UG, in effect, that that is the object that you are studying when you study UG. Okay. So one of the things, one of the problems I've heard about this model is that it's actually been very difficult to find any linguistic universals uh, I mean it's called universal grammar and so the picture is well we all have the same faculty and this, with the same set of toggle switches and what distinguishes my speaking English as a first language without any um, accent and a Russian speaker speaking Russian without an accent. And then if we learn these respective languages later in life, we will have accents. Um, And so these various toggle switches get set, but they're all the same toggle switches across the human race. Yeah, that's the idea. Uh, But but are there any? Uh, Yeah, actually, there's a very good book uh, about this by Mark Baker, and it's called The Atoms of Language. And uh, he he actually has a you know he he thinks of it like uh, like a periodic table of elements and um, he's going to sort of lay out what he thinks the uh, the parameters actually are that that is and then sort of the order in which they apply and then he can get a, a map of the world's languages based um, based on those those parameter settings. 
so it's um, it's probably you, you know if this you know it's really important to distinguish two things. One is whether there are linguistic universals, and then the second is you know what is UG about. And I mean UG is just a, a common biological system or organ or module or whatever you would like to call it. And um, there's nothing in that assumption that would suggest necessarily that there would be superficial properties that were common across human languages. I think what you do find is that there are certain kinds of parametric variations that you, you you tend to get one or the other and they tend to pattern in certain ways. So it's not like there's certain kinds of properties that we're looking for, but there's certain switch settings and those switch settings pattern with each other in, in interesting ways sometimes. So could you give an example maybe just to make it a little more concrete? There are certain kinds of facts about um, French and Italian, for example. So, um, and here you're going to have to forgive my my French, but you know, for, so for example, um, you know, I can say uh, so. An, uh, an, an example of a parameter would be what they call the null subject parameter, and in effect, that that says that. Um, you just don't need to to pronounce a uh, subject of a sentence under certain circumstances. So Italian, for example, I can drop the subject of the sentence under certain circumstances. Um, now, uh, it, it sort of turns out that that simple fact, which is easily observable, right, um, has a lot of consequences that sort of cascade through the rest of the grammar, and it explains a, a lot of very subtle facts about the grammar as well. Okay. Um, so let's uh, um, get to, I guess, the first, um, before, after the preliminaries, um, where you introduce a lot of the, you know, details, uh, or at least relevant details of the... Uh, uh, the Chomskyan view or the the principles and parameters network. Um, you talk about the ontology of of this, and you know what exactly is UG, what is your language, and you you distinguish different levels of of uh, language and of grammar, right? You have you have Peter Ludlow's grammar and the universal grammar, and and um, could you maybe say a word about what you think the ontology of of, of languages. Right. Now, I, this is probably a lot of linguists are going to disagree with, with what I say there um, because they're skeptical about the idea that there is something like the language there at all. They're mostly interested in the grammar itself. But um, I posited not just the grammar, um, but I also suggested that there is, say, the Peter Ludlow's language, for example. So 
Um, we have UG, which is universal grammar. That's this biological system that we all have. Then there's the particular parametric setting in, a, in an individual. So there's my parametric setting. We could call that UGPL. And then um, by virtue of um, being in that parametric state, uh, I have uh, a particular language. In effect, it's generated a language for me. So we could call that language LPL. So and- let me just... so. I have UG and I have UGCF, and my UGCF is identical to your UGPL? I don't know if they're identical, but they're probably pretty close. I think they overlap pretty significantly, but I would bet that there are actually some differences. Okay. Continue, yeah. Well, uh, that's the kind of basic thing about it then we get into issues like well you know what's what's the data and so forth and in that case i think we have certain kinds of judgments about about these linguistic forms so for example um here's uh here because i happen to be in the parametric setting that i'm in um in my language I, if I say John said that Bill likes himself, himself can link up with Bill, but it can't link up with John. Now, you know, if I had been born in Sweden, himself probably could link up with John, right? Uh, because himself can sort of like reach further back in the sentence to find its antecedent. Um, but I have a particular judgment about that. It's a it's a fact about. It's a fact about LPL, like Ludlow's language, that himself can be associated with John, but it can't be associated with Bill, and Bill said that John likes himself. And this is because your UG got set with those particular parameters due to the linguistic input that you heard as a child. Yeah, that is the then that is the explanation for it. That's correct. Okay. Right? Um, so, well, now that we're talking about data... Um, which sort of moves to the, I think, to the next chapter in a way, is the, um, uh, you, you do defend a particular role for linguistic intuition in linguistics. And um, I thought it would be, it might be a good idea and be interesting to know um, why exactly the use of or even uh, dependence on intuitions uh, as evidence uh, for linguistic theories or for, for particular grammatical rules. Um, what sort of controversy there is about the use of intuitions um, as data or in any way? Um, and then why you think it this shouldn't be controversial if it's properly understood? Right. I think, you know, I, I worried about intuitions a lot. And then I saw... Tim Williamson give a talk on intuitions in philosophy and whatever you want to say about his view about intuitions in philosophy I think he's basically (laughs) the view is dead on right for the linguistic case Um, basically uh, I mean we shouldn't even call them intuitions they're they're simply judgments and uh, I judge right Here's the data for the example I just gave you, right? So remember, the example was uh, Bill said that John likes himself. 
And I had this judgment that himself could link with John, but not Bill. And so the date, what's the data? Well, the data, the datum in this case is, is a, a content that's judged by me. Right. And the judgment is that himself can be associated with John, but not Bill in say a tokening of Bill said that John likes himself. Right. Um, and, you know, call it intuition or whatever, that's a judgment that I make. And um, more often than not, that that kind of judgment is correct. Okay, so why should that be at all sort of controversial? Well, you know, there's a, there's actually a, a, a lot of discussion where people complain about judgments. And there are cases where if you look at the linguistic literature, people make a claim about a particular judgment. And you're like, what, really? And, and, I, and often the judgments are subtle. Um, but that's, you know, in that case, you're, you're looking at a judgment that, that someone is making. And the reason it's subtle is because you're kind of out at the outer limits of theory and it's harder to gather good data. Um, but we sort of overlook the fact that you know the the most of the judgments we don't even like think about right no one is no one is sitting around concerned about whether I correctly judged that when I say um, Bill said that John likes himself that like somehow there's something funny about my judgment that that himself can't link up with bill um, it's it's um, it's it's weird. It's like there's a kind of weird Cartesianism in the whole thing, and I think this was part of Williamson's diagnosis in the philosophical intuition case too. We, it's like people want us to be immune from error in this stuff, but of course, you know, judgments go bad sometimes. I mean, this happens. We get we get distracted by stuff. There are sort of pragmatic encroachments on this. And, uh, um, um, you know, we just, linguists just have to deal with that. There's some of their data gets corrupted, just like in any other science. Well, I, I guess maybe the, the, the deeper background worry here is just that, you know, UG and these, these faculties or module, whatever you want to call it, of, of, you know, language that, you know, biological capacity or biologically based capacity that we have to acquire and use languages. We don't have any access to that. Um, I mean, I'm just voicing the, you know, sort of the voice of skepticism here, perhaps. Um, We don't have that kind of knowledge, um, you know, any more than we can sort of introspect. I mean, the idea here basically is, you know, intuitions, judgments, if you want to call them. Um, they are, you know, who knows what they are, you know, actually reporting because the sorts of um, capacities that we're talking about um, are occurring at a level of uh, of cognition, you know, far below consciousness and not even accessible to consciousness. No, no more accessible than, say, you know, visual processing. And and so the you know the most skeptical sort of judgment on these judgments is that they're they're just garbage. I mean, there's just people making stuff up or reporting something, but it has no real good connection to what's going on in the UG. 
Yeah, I don't understand that line of <laughs> reasoning. I mean, it, w- it would be as though you said, well, I'm going to study vision and I'm interested in the sort of low level, you know, the, 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 the visual system, but I'm not going to gather any data that involves people looking at things and, you know, judging whether this line is longer than that line or judging, you know, whether something's moving or not. I mean, any science of the human mind is or is just going to be based on certain kinds of judgments. And likewise, if you do, if you're doing physics, you're going to be making certain kinds of judgments about, um, you know, uh, just reading the instruments in the laboratory, in effect, you're making certain kinds of judgments. So um, it's very difficult for me to understand what what that worry would be about, where we have certain kinds of uh, judgments that are okay, they're defeasible, um, but on the whole, they seem to be reliable, and uh, they give us information about... Uh, say the language that we speak, and then what we want to do is to come up with some sort of explanation of 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 why the facts are the way that they are. Okay, I guess I guess the disanalogy with the vision case is that um, well, to begin with, reports of visual experience, you know, are you know, it's 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 a delicate matter the extent to which we can sort of take those to be at face value. Um, or reports of our own, you know, uh, you know, lots of different reports of our own mental states are, you know, taken not at face value. And yet, in the linguistic case, there's not not just more reliance on them than in the visual case, where you've got, you know, a clear part of the brain that is, you know, largely dedicated to visual processing in the normal case. Um, so it's not just greater reliance, but also the sense that um, uh, these are somehow not to be, you know, rendered or not not to be. We're not supposed to be as skeptical about them as we are in so many other uh, domains in which, you know, cognitive, you know, reports of cognitive states are um, judged to be, you know, with a, with a great deal more skepticism? Um, well, if you, I, well, first of all, let's be clear that these kinds of judgments are not the only source of data. So there's, there's plenty of psycholinguistic data and, you know, people work with MRIs and, and they do eye tracking work and everything else. So uh, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to give the impression that most of the data is actually coming through these judgments, but I did want to observe that the judgments on the whole, whole were, were reliable and I think that for certain kinds of work and vision, it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to proceed without without relying on people's judgments of um, 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 certain kinds of uh, visual visual phenomena. Um, it might it would no doubt be difficult to proceed only with that data, just as I think it would be much more difficult to proceed only with. Um, linguistic judgments but that doesn't mean that they're not 
valuable sources of information. And it's very difficult to see how we could make significant progress in linguistics without availing ourselves of this data, which as far as, well, not as far as I can tell, but like by any measure is largely reliable information. I mean, you just think about the example we used just a minute ago. I mean, what kind of, you know, I mean, on on what basis would you make a claim that a judgment that reflexive pronouns work that way was unreliable? I mean, what would it mean to say, oh, well, no, actually, actually, that judgment is just completely wrong. There's some sort of fact about reflexives and there is this long distance linking thing it's just that not only do you judge that it's um, I mean what would be the claim there's just an accident that when people talk they don't proceed as though himself is, is linking up with Bill in that case even though even though it it Grammatically, it can and it does. I mean, I just, I just don't understand why, why one would think that data of that form is not reliable. Okay, good enough. Um, well, you also, you just sort of touched on the the issue of normativity there a little bit. Um, and so let me let me move on to that question. Um, so one of the more provocative theses, I suppose, of the book is that. Uh, you defend the idea that the these grammars that we that we possess and that we have these defeasible but reliable judgments about um, are normative, um, you know, rule guiding. Um, in a similar sense, I take it uh, to the way that moral rules are are normative or rule guiding. Um, and that's a kind of an interesting view. Well, I mean, why don't you? Could you play? explain what the view is before I you know sure. respond to it. It's a it's a certain kind of norm, right? So um it's what I would call an individual norm. So that is I have you know, Peter Ludlow's grammar establishes linguistic rules for me and I I'm normatively guided by them. Now this is this this claim is very controversial in linguistics and part of it is anytime you say normative or prescriptive linguists will freak out because they spend their whole lives fighting people who think that linguistics should be about you know what you should say like don't don't end the sentence with a preposition or don't split infinitives and so forth you know these kind of prescriptive rules and then they keep saying no no we don't we're not interested in that we're like interested in describing what you know people's sort of knowledge of language as it were now but I wanted to make the case that um, grammatical rules could be normatively guiding. And on the face of it, that view looks crackers, right? Because we don't know what the grammatical rules are. I mean, they have these funny names like subjacency. Um, they are the product of very intense uh, philo- uh, sorry, linguistic theorizing, um, so only a very select few of individuals in the world even knows what those rules are. So you're in this funny position where you're you're talking about 
rules that we don't know that are that are normatively guiding for us. And so to make the case for that, I, I drew on some stuff from ethics where people like Nomi no, no Arpali and, and Peter Railton have uh, argued for these uh, so-called, um, in these reverse equation cases where it looks like people are guided by moral rules or principles, normatively guided by them, even if even if they have no access to those rules at all. And in that, the sort of classic example there is Huck Finn. And Huck, you know, at a certain point, um, Huck has to consider whether he's going to turn in Jim, the escaped slave. And he ends up not doing it. He basically decides that's just, you know, that's just not the thing to do. And then Huck is uh, later thinking, he said, well, I must be a bad boy because Jim is uh, somebody's property. And, I, you know, if I was a good boy, I would have I would have turned in Jim. OK, so these people in ethics say, well, see, what's going on there is that there actually is a kind of moral rule there, like uh, respect for persons. And it was normatively guiding for Huck, even though he had no access to it. He didn't know he was following that rule. He just thought he was being bad. And so the linguistic case is is the same, I think, that there are these linguistic rules. You're normatively guided by them, even if you don't know it, and even if you specifically believe that there are no no linguistic rules at all. You're, they're still there, and they're still normatively guiding you. Um, so could you say something? What What motivates this view? That was one of the questions that I had. Why, why would one want to defend the view that we are normatively guided by the grammars that we have? Well, I, in the book, I was just interested in whether or not that view made sense, because it looks like it, you, you couldn't even sort it out. And I think all I've really claimed to do in the book is sort of sort out the view and say it, it's coherent. Now, you're asking the question of, well, why would you believe that? I think you know, I think if if you pressed Chomsky on this, I think he actually probably has to believe something like this because he makes huh. this distinction between competence and performance, and and most linguists will will agree we don't study linguistic competence; we're studying a, a kind of performance system. And now, um, well, what is a performance system? Um, it's supposedly some knowledge that you have about what's uh, about language. Um, It's tacit knowledge for the most part. I mean, you tacitly know these linguistic rules. And then the question is, well, what role do these linguistic rules play? I mean, what role does this knowledge play? Now, if you just sort of like plug it directly into a parser, then what is it's just part of the performance system then it's just sort of um you know it's explaining why you produce the sentences you do or whatever but you could look at it another way and it's like it is the knowledge of these rules that is sort of guiding to us it doesn't control the control the performance except in a kind of uh abstract way that moral principles might might guide our our behavior in real life, you know, and we could be sort of on the mark or off the mark 
we might feel some discomfort when we're off the mark. Um, so in, in that view, your thought would be, well, then these linguistic rules are kind of, they kind of have this regulative function. And, you know, when I, when I start to say something that's ungrammatical, I'll get this feeling of discomfort and I'll do some kind of repair to it. Um, that's the idea. I mean, it's just, I don't have an argument for that, but I think, I think it's a coherent position. And I, I think it probably, you know, with some work, you could, you could make a pretty good case for it. Okay, so it, it sounds like, I mean, to go back to the Huckleberry Finn case, um, okay, and this is just a, uh, you know, first pass interpretation of what's going on there. Um, so Huck Finn doesn't, he, he, he doesn't, in some sense, he does not know that, you know, persons deserve to be treated in certain ways. Um, and even if he did, it's not clear that he would judge that uh, Jim, you know, counts as a, as a case of a person because he's a slave and Huck's been raised in, you know, slave yeah. territory, right? right. Um, and uh, But d- despite the fact that in this intuitive sense, he does not possess knowledge of the rules, he is nevertheless guided by the rule yeah it's certainly not conscious knowledge so uh, in in chomsky speak it's you know uh at least at a certain point up through the 80s you did talk about knowledge of rules um later he slipped into talking about cognizing rules so so you i mean one way you could put it as well Huck (laughs) huck cognizes the rule that you know he should treat Jim as a person and uh, with respect, um, um, or we could say he tacitly knows that. Yeah. Okay, and so the same case would be with uh, the normative guidance of grammar, right? Is that what don't, you're don't link that reflexive pronoun to to something that's too far away, for example. Okay. And even though you don't know it and probably could never have access to it, I mean, certainly not by intuition. Uh, you're still normatively guided by it. That's the idea. I see. Um, now, here's here's one here's what one skeptic might say in response. I understand that you're not defending this. You you're actually just sort of feeling it out, um, and that's that's an interesting thing to do. I think. Um, so a skeptic might say, "Well, we are you know we've got this UG. It's it's part of our biological." heritage and inheritance. Um, So we're basically built to acquire languages. Um, And if these, this sort of, it it seems to imply that we have these linguistic rules that are normative in this sense, rule guiding. Um, And the analogy was drawn with with the moral case, you know, using Huck Finn as a kind of a illustrative example, but you might want to say, well, you know, if you if you're going to draw that analogy, then we might get into trouble with with moral norms, norms, because uh, does anybody want to say that we inherit we you know sort of have as part of our biological heritage or 
or you know in, inherit some sense um, moral norms? Yeah, I think people do think that. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that's I think that's a plausible view. Why do you, you don't seem to think so? No, I, I guess, well, I'm not an ethicist, so, you know, what do I know? But uh, I would have thought that morals were taught. Oh. And well. not and not a month. Uh, here's, here's another way to put it. I would have thought that principles and parameters is not the framework appropriate for, for ethics. You know, that's a... I mean, there are people working on this line of thought, and um, uh, I think, I mean, there are these rumors that even Rawls had some material on this when in earlier drafts of the theory of justice, but that Bert Drebin made him take it out or something like that. <laughs> so I, so uh, there, there, are, there are a number of people sort of working on this idea, and also there are a number of people sort of working to, to break the analogy. Um, but you're, when you say morals are taught, yeah, of course, that's absolutely true, just as certain like linguistic rules are too. So what you would do, you know, in the linguistic case, there are certain, there are certain norms that are not really part of UG. These are norms like you don't end a sentence with a preposition or don't say ain't, you know, that sort of stuff. And so, so these kind of outside norms, right, that are going on. Right. Now, in the ethics case, um, there are going to be certain kinds of internal norms, and then there are also going to be these external norms. So presumably, when Huck thought he should turn in Jim, he was aware of an external norm, right, that he'd been taught. Mm-hmm. And then, but then there's this internal norm which he wasn't taught, right? Because it was part of his universal ethics or whatever, right? The uh-huh. universal grammar ethics, and that rule was treat persons, uh, treat persons with respect, and uh, um, and uh, that one that's that's the internal norm. I see. So it sounds like a kind of a well. Never mind. <laughs> um, so let's. That's interesting. Uh, let me let, let me go on to the the question of of uh, of syntax. I suppose. Sure. Um, uh, you also you suggest again towards the end of the book that um, that syntax can be can be individuated widely, and I'll just I'll just use the technical terms for that, and and hope that maybe. You can illuminate, you know, how you illuminate those different concepts, um, and explain why you think that syntax uh, can and perhaps should be um, individuated widely. Well, bizarrely enough, I I came to this position via conversation with Chomsky, and let's start with the case of a computer and we think well computers for sure have these syntactic states so there's certain lines of code that the so in the computer program so surely there are these syntactic states that the computer instantiates 
And then you ask, well, okay, what's the fact about that computer in isolation that makes it true that it is instantiating that syntax or instantiating those lines of code? And if you're just allowed to sort of look at what's going on inside the box, there are these really powerful arguments that you get from Kripke and Wittgenstein and so forth, which persuade me that there is no fact about the system in isolation that makes it true that it is doing a particular computation um, or that it is in a certain syntactic state. To know that it's in a certain syntactic state, you have to know about things going on outside of the computer. And, and I'm putting this in terms of knowledge, but I, I mean to also put this in terms of what makes it possible to be in a particular syntactic state. And what makes it be in one syntactic state rather than another is not just a function of what the bits of metal and the electrons in the machine are doing, but has to do with things like the intention of the programmer, how that machine is embedded in the environment, and the kinds of tasks it's given, etc. So, so what you get out of that is an argument about computers, which is that the syntactic states of computers have to be individuated widely. That is, a syntactic state is not just something that has to do with what's going on inside the box, but the syntactic state is a relational property. So let's back up just a little to be sure we're clear on the difference between sort of a relational property and and an individualistic or a, a narrow property. So I might think of my of the rest mass of an object as being something that the object has in isolation, but other kinds of properties the object only has by being in a relation to something else. So my rest mass is something that I have anywhere. Um, my weight, right, is a function of where, you know, what planet I'm standing on. And the idea is that in semantics, for example, or in some people's views of psychology, a lot of the properties that we study are actually more properly thought of as being these relational type properties. And here, surprisingly, I think you can make a case that something, properties like the syntactic state a machine is in, surprisingly, it ends up being a relational property. Now, once you've sort of convinced yourself that that's true for a machine, then it's a little bit difficult to see why it shouldn't also be true for the syntax of a human language. You know, if if there's no fact about the machine that makes it true that it's computing something, how could it be that there's a fact about a human that makes it true that it's computing something? I mean, a fact about a human in isolation that makes it true that it's computing a particular function or instantiating a certain syntactic form. Is that clear enough? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, I, I suppose um, 
you might clarify, you know, why everybody would think that's that's ridiculous. People, people are have just been getting around wrapping their minds around the idea that semantic properties are relational. So, you know, you go back to the 1970s and Putnam came out with the meaning of meaning and, um, and, you know, the sort of observation that the, the meanings of, of the words we use, it looks as though that they, um, are a, a, a functional. They're sorry. They're um, relationally determined. That is, it's sort of they depend on the the external environment. So you know the whole thing with H two O and X Y Z. And and it took a long time for people to wrap their minds around that. And you know, in the eighties, people were were like, yeah, but. Um, well, what about this case where, uh, you know, I'm on Twin Earth and I go over here and then, like, I didn't forget anything, but now I don't know what I thought. And, you know, people weren't bringing along that externalism to the content of memories. And then it was difficult for them to bring along the externalism to second-order knowledge. And so it's... So people are just wrapping their minds around the idea that the content, uh, sort of the content of something, like a word, like the meaning of a word, could be determined by environmental factors. And it's like another huge step to to get to the idea that, well, actually it's not just the, the meaning that's dependent upon an environmental setting, but it's actually also the form of the expression is somehow sensitive to environmental setting. Um, in the computer case, it seems to be, to me, to be inevitable. And I, and Chomsky, this is where Chomsky actually convinced me of this, that, I mean, in the case of a computer, there is no fact of the matter about the system in isolation, but he just thinks that in the case of humans, um, that because it's sort of embedded in biology, that there there is a fact of the matter about this, which I don't really get, but you know that's the idea. So do, you, um, I mean, I I find it kind of persuasive having, well, one of the arguments, again, uh, in response to the externalism, you know, people trying to wrap their minds around that, as you say, is. Um, was one of the problems that arose as a in response to that was the the as you kind of hinted the problem of uh, you know self knowledge, um, but another one was the problem of, of mental causation. Yeah, um, yeah, um, and that problem is is also resolved if um, if his syntax is also individuated widely. But of course, Fodor famously thought that that was just absolutely outrageous so, so you am i allowed to ask you a question <laughs> yeah okay i guess i'm i'm aware that you actually made this argument and is it and this was where was this 
Yeah. Uh, this is a paper I wrote a few years ago. I mean, this this interview is really not supposed to be about. Yeah, well, me. no, this is interesting. So, so it's but where was where was the paper? Uh, it appeared in Minds and Machines. And what's the title of it? Uh, what was it? Just semantic externalism and the mechanics of thought. Okay, and you actually, I see. I, it, but it it totally makes sense that it, if you went to externalism about syntax, it would. It, 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 yes, I can see exactly how that's going to solve some problems for mental causation. Yeah. Um, yes. Very nice. Okay. Um, well, let's anyway. Let's. let's no, but it just see, there you go. So, yeah. <laughs> We're the only two people on the planet who it think could that be, syntax yeah, could, could be. be externalistic. But I think you 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 you've certainly made a, a, a an interesting case for it. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit about meaning. I mean, since we're we're touching on semantics, and of course, language is you know if if as you say, the subject matter of linguistics starts with mapping sounds to meanings. We haven't said a word really about meaning, um, and UG is all about you know the rules and the grammar and the syntax. Um, but a lot of a lot of the reason why much of linguistics has been concerned with syntax and not meaning um, is because Chomsky sort of famously f- argued that uh, a referential semantics uh, just isn't possible, can't be done. Um, and so, in your in your uh, I guess chapter six, you. Uh, you disagree. I mean, you, you argue against that. And so I'm, I'm very interested if you could explain, um, you know, why he felt that it, it just wasn't possible and why you think that his arguments just don't work. Yeah. First of all, let me say in Chomsky's defense that he he does believe in a theory of meaning. He just doesn't mean what we mean by it. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, he, he's all for a theory of meaning as long as it doesn't involve a kind of referential right. semantics. So it could be Correct. a model theoretic semantics. It, and um, uh, it, it, weirdly, though, it, I think at the end of the day, he is going to plop for some kind of use use theory of meaning. Um, yeah, I, I have a little little bit of a hard time understanding what Chomsky's real concern here is. Um, if you if you go through that chapter, I mean, he he has these arguments, and you know they're they're perfectly good arguments about why you wouldn't want to um, deploy a referential semantics. Um, but I think it really all comes down to a certain kind of general view of scientific inquiry um, that's got not just to do with linguistics. Certainly it's got to do with how we believe psychology should proceed. And I think... Uh-huh. His view of psychology is basically the one that Fodor had back in the day when he wrote methodological solipsism as a research method in psychology. Yes. So Chomsky believes that the way you make progress in psychology is basically to filter out, basically, you're not interested in what's going on in the external world at all. You would, you're just interested in what's hitting the the cones and rods of the eye and 
um, you know, what's, you know, things that are impinging on the sense organs. So there's, there's a interview that I tacked to the end of the book in which he goes into this very explicitly in the interview. I mean, he just thinks that, um, it's, it's just what's hitting the sense organs. And then what we're going to do is we're going to figure out what the internal processing system is. And at one point he says, well, people working in vision, yeah, yeah. Okay. Maybe they're, you know, they're looking at these apparatus, you know, we're looking at the subjects are looking at these apparatuses, but he says, well, you know, the vision scientists would just tap the optical nerve if they could. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's the way you, you, he thinks that you ought to proceed. You, you just, uh, anything that's going on outside the organism is not relevant to the theory that you construct. You're interested just in that organism, at, at least when you're doing linguistics or whatever, you, you know, the organism is just completely bracketed off from the external world. Now, if you were going to study something else, you know, something like culture or, um, other kinds of um, 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 properties that are sort of clearly interpersonal or relational or something like that, that's a different matter. But if you're interested just in that sort of internal mechanism, he thinks you just, it's completely that methodological solipsism program. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's sort of the mechanistic generative program. Well, I mean, I don't really understand... <clears throat> Those two things can certainly be uncoupled, and it's it's basically the point of one of the central points of the book is to is to uncouple those things. So the reason the, there's the big psi on the cover of it and uh, the Greek letter psi, and I talk about psi language is what I wanted to do was to keep the whole Chomsky and program in generative linguistics. But uncouple it from the idea that you had to do, you had to keep this sort of methodological solipsism assumption around, and that um, uh, Chomsky was correct to think that this is uh, this, the UG is a chapter in cognitive psychology, but incorrect in thinking that because it's a chapter in cognitive psychology. It is therefore an individualistic science. So, you know, Tyler Burge had an, a paper called Individualism in Psychology. Right. And so, what I'm basically doing is saying keep the psychology, lose the individualism. Hence, instead of where Chomsky talks about I language, then I said we should talk about psi language because the real important thing is not the individualism, the important thing is the, that it's psychological. Right. And then we can argue about. You know whether that's individualistic or relational. Okay. But, yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, so we're we're out of time, uh, but I did want to ask just one final question. Um, if you could just say a word about where you, uh, you know, future projects, what you're working on now. Uh, right now, I'm working on the lexicon and how when we get together with somebody, we build a little micro language and we define terms, uh, redefine terms for purposes of the conversation. And part of that, there's two assumptions in that. One is that meaning is 
kind of radically underdetermined, and secondly, that meanings are malleable, that we can adjust them. And um, this ends up having consequences both in real-world type context, but also in philosophical in philosophical discussion. So if you think about contextualism and epistemology, I mean, there the idea is that if I go and take a, a seminar from Peter Unger, we're in effect defining the word knowledge in a particular way, and then you move to another setting, and then that definition is no longer on, but you've got sort of a different definition of it. And... Um, and it's 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 basically about the process by which we we adjust meanings and by which um, um, context by context how we sync up with each other when we're building these little micro languages. So that's, it sounds like uh, Davidson had a paper. Yeah, yeah. So he had that paper, a nice derangement of yeah epitaphs, epitaphs, right? Yeah, it's like that. It's like the passing theory. I mean, David, that was <laughs> Davidson's paper was a little bit short on details. So what I'm uh, trying to do is sort of show how that idea might work. Great. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. Oh yeah, thank you. This okay. was fun. Okay. Bye. 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 You've been listening to our interview with Professor Peter Ludlow, who is John Evans Professor of Moral and Intellectual Philosophy at Northwestern University, about his new book, The Philosophy of Generative Linguistics. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed our podcast, and thank you for listening.